The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Walsh. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. And, you know, welcome again to our AI Today podcast. We are rapidly getting to the 200-episode mark and four years of fantastic episodes of AI Today. And, you know, part of the reason why we talk a little bit about this at the beginning is that many people tune into these podcasts for the first time and don't realize that we have this huge library of interviews with people who are real influencers in the area of AI and machine learning. Learning. Folks like Colin Angle, founder of iRobot, and Ben Gertzel from SingularityNet, researchers from MIT and Harvard, and uh, government folks like Suzette Kent, former CIO, as well as Jose Arrieta from uh, Health and Human Services, and Tim Clement-Jones, Lord Tim Clement-Jones from the UK House of Lords, and people at the OECD, and from Norway, and from Australia, and I think it's really great that we get these insights from people all around the world who are sharing where AI is heading today. And hint, that's why the podcast is called AI Today. So, um, you know, part of this is that we also provide a lot of insights from our research into how AI machine learning is being adopted and some of the trends and some of the patterns. And so we encourage you to listen to some of those uh, podcasts and, of course, subscribe to the AI Today podcast on your favorite platform so that way you could be informed of are all these great interviews and uh, sessions as we record them. Right. You know, as Ron mentioned, we are quickly approaching episode 200, which we're super excited about. So stay tuned. We might do something fun. But we've been able to interview a lot of guests on this podcast. And I love to interview guests because they always get to bring such different perspectives to this podcast. We also have some, some podcasts that cover our research at Cognolytica. We're an AI-focused research advisory and education firm. Um, and maybe we'll dig deeper into some use cases. We did have a use case series on how AI was being applied in different industries. And we're fortunate to have with us today Erwin Gianchandani, who's the Deputy Assistant Director, Computer and Information Science and Engineering at the National Science Foundation. So hi, Erwin, and thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background, your current role at National Science Foundation. I know you've recently taken on an additional one as well. And maybe just explain what the National Science Foundation is for some of our listeners that may not be familiar with it. Sure. Happy to do that. Thanks again for having me, Kathleen and, and Ron. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast today. So as you said, my name is Erwin Ganchanani, and uh, for the last five and a half years or so, I've served as the deputy for the Computer and Information Science and Engineering Directorate at the National Science Foundation. So you might hear me over the course of this podcast uh, accidentally say CISE, C-I-S-E, that's short for the acronym of our directorate, the Computing and Information Science and Engineering Directorate. Uh, and as you sort of alluded to, Kathleen, in the last few months, I've actually uh, gone on detail uh, to the office of the director of the National Science Foundation, serving as an acting senior advisor there, specifically focused on translation, innovation, and partnerships. So I'm coming to you really from my size perspective uh, in this podcast today, but uh, I've taken on this additional role, and I'm happy to say a little bit more about that if the opportunity presents itself too. Uh, so as you may know, and as, as some of uh, your listeners may know, uh, the National Science Foundation 
Foundation is really a research funding agency within the federal government. So in particular, we support research and education in all areas of science and engineering, from astronomy to biology to chemistry to mathematics to physics to social and behavioral sciences as well. Really, any discipline of science and engineering and technology and mathematics, NSF is a funder of that in the federal government. Now, we have a vast, uh, we have a budget of about $8.5 billion in the current fiscal year, fiscal year 2021. And the vast, vast majority of that, about 93%, goes out the door in the form of grants or cooperative agreements, primarily to colleges and universities throughout the U.S., but some also to small businesses that are just starting up as well. Uh, so we are really, again, a research funding agency and an extramural research funding agency in the sense that our dollars go out the door largely to support research activities and education activities at colleges and universities across this nation. Now, my directorate for the last five and a half years, the Computer and Information Science and Engineering Directorate, really serves to advance the frontiers of the information technologies that we all rely upon in our daily lives on a day-to-day -day basis. So for example, NSF's investments have led to what is today the internet, uh, they've led to the GPS technologies that help us to be able to navigate. Uh, they've led to the smartphone, right? If you think about the smartphone, many of the individual components of that smartphone, like the GPS connectivity, the wireless connectivity, the touchscreen interface, many of those can be traced back to their roots at, in terms of NSF funding years and years ago uh, to academic researchers. Uh, and I think the foremost example that folks talk about in the mid-1990s an NSF-funded project at Stanford University actually culminated in the creation of a new company that we all know today to be Google. So that's sort of a little bit about NSF. Uh, and I'll just say that in terms of AI, uh, NSF-funded research has really enabled much of the AI revolution that we talk about today. So uh, NSF investments in reinforcement learning, for example, many decades ago led to the algorithms in Netflix and Amazon that today recommend movies and products based on your past viewing or purchasing history. Uh, so we really take very seriously our role in enabling the research that can have transformative impact on society in years and decades to come. And we also care at the same time about education and workforce development. How do we train the next generation of AI researchers and practitioners who can innovate and use these tools and capabilities going forward? Yeah, I think that's really cool. I don't think people realize the, the amount of research that the NSF has supported just across all domains. You know, uh, you know here, obviously, we're going to talk about AI and machine learning and, and advanced data analytics and all that good stuff. But, but I know that the domains that NSF is involved in are really all the primary research areas. And, and research is the core of competitive advantage, you know, for a, a society and for a country, for organizations as a whole. So I think this is fantastic. And one of the things that you spoke about at our recent Machine Learning Lifecycle Conference, where uh, you joined a panel talking about enhancing skills, AI skills, in the government workforce, is you were talking about some of these ways that we could sort of bring in some of this new, uh, you know, insight, this new research, these new skills, both to the federal workforce as well as to the, the general uh, workforce. And for our listeners, uh, you can still actually view this panel online. That's the benefit of all these online sessions is that they're available for recording and for replay. If you just go to ML Lifecycle, conf 
Um, free to attend. All of our events are always free to attend. We love you can join and see the panel where Irwin and others on the panel uh, shared insights on. Uh, how how AI skills were being enhanced uh, in the government workforce. Uh, but for our listeners here, maybe as a way of uh, teasing them a bit and uh, giving them a little bit of insight to to watch that panel, maybe you could share some of the of what you shared there at the panel about ways in which the federal government is helping to upskill and reskill the workforce. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think this is such an important topic, Ron, uh, and and I was uh, glad to be a part of that panel as well. Uh, as you've noted, the federal government has indeed, I think, uh, placed a premium on really trying to upskill and reskill our existing workforce in light of emerging technologies. And those emerging technologies include data science, artificial intelligence, automation types of capabilities. And so I think this is, a, in some ways, a grand challenge for all of the departments and agencies and offices across the government in terms of how we can explore promising practices to be able to do this successfully. Um, let me talk about what we try to do at the National Science Foundation. Uh, you know, we are in, in many ways a, a science funding agency. And so we have invested in a lot of the discoveries and innovations, as, as I talked about, as you alluded to, in these fields over the years. And so now it's about how do we bring those very tools and capabilities that our funding has given rise to, how do we bring those to bear in our workplace to be able to help with our day-to-day operations. Uh, so let me let me talk about how uh, we think of this, uh, not just myself, this is really my colleagues um, who spend quite a bit of time thinking about this as well on a day-to-day basis. It's really in three parts. So there's growing awareness, there's offering exposure, and then there's providing the in-depth training and experiential opportunities that one needs to provide to give folks uh, the, the prospect of really being able to think more deeply about some of these emerging technology areas. So I'll try to step through each of those in just a little bit of detail. Growing awareness, right? Uh, over the last few years, we have convened a number of brown bags, a number of expos, a number of forums of different kinds within the agency to really provide our staff of all different backgrounds and all different job classes with an opportunity to become aware of new and emerging technologies. So these could be kind of sharing new data analytical platforms that we're exploring, uh, visualization software, an understanding of what RPA, remote uh, remote process automation looks like, and so forth, right? So it's really about trying to give folks a sense of what sorts of capabilities are out there that are emergent that could be brought to use on their day-to-day their their day-to-day jobs and tasks. Uh, The second is really about offering exposure, right? So once you've grown awareness a little bit, can we provide folks a little bit more in the way of hands-on, but still lightweight tutorials and other sessions that allow folks to take those brown bags and expos a bit to the next level, right? Starting to gain exposure in a lightweight, friendly, non-confrontational environment so that folks can start to really experiment with these tools and platforms and get their hands uh, dirty, if you will, with them. And then third, once, once you've been able to do that and you've been able to sort of preview, okay, here are some really cool tools. Here are how they could potentially interface with your day-to-day job and, and tasks and responsibilities. Now let's provide some in-depth training and experiential opportunities. And I think once 
once you know once folks interest has been peaked you know giving them this more rigorous training is a means to be able to truly enhance their skill set as as they move forward i think this is true for all of us right uh, and so uh, at the national science foundation we actually have an in-house uh, nsf academy as we call it that is an organization that really is focused on developing training programs for our staff so that they can increasingly think about um, ways in which we can offer training on these emerging technologies. Uh, so those are sort of the three buckets that I like to think of, growing awareness, offering exposure, and then providing folks with experiential opportunities. And in the last bucket there, as we think about the new positions that we need, so for example, we've we've uh, put a spotlight on data analytics and data scientists positions within the foundation, uh, trying to provide folks with opportunities to detail into those positions, to build up their competencies further through these sorts of experiential engagements. Now, having said all of that, um, if you give me just one more second here on this question, I, I just want to add, you know, that is what we're doing today with our current workforce to provide reskilling and upskilling. I also think it's really important for us to think about the workforce of the future, and the panel talked a little bit about this too. So um, we at NSF really have that responsibility as part of our mission. And it starts at the K through 12 level and it works up through college, uh, uh, grad school and lifelong learning. And I'll give you just a couple of really quick examples. Uh, at the K through 12 level, uh, NSF funded the development of a new framework for an advanced placement exam called Computer Science Principles. Uh, the goal here was to develop an exam and the associated instructional material that would provide students with the core competencies in how to think computationally about the physical world and specific problems. So it wasn't so much about if you want to learn computer science, let's not focus on how you write code. Let's instead focus on how you express problems through logic and patterns, much the way that a computer might. And so when the AP exam rolled out in, uh, it was 2016, 2017, in that academic year, I believe, we saw a huge explosion of interest across the country in that in, in, in taking an AP exam in computer science. And in fact, the College Board later reported that it was the single largest launch of any AP exam in the program's 60 year history at the time. And, and what's more, I think what's more exciting to me, even than the numbers, the sheer numbers, it's the numbers of black, African-American, Latinx, and female students who are taking an AP computer science exam as a result of the introduction of this new one, computer science principles. Today, there are three times as many students in these demographics who take an APCS exam than did prior to 2016. So to me, that's really a lesson in the value of not just introducing computing at the K through 12 level, because you can motivate students early, you can inspire students early, and then they can go on to study computer science and AI and machine learning and other emerging technologies at the college and, and graduate level and become future uh, part of the future government workforce. But it's also a lesson in how much impact it has and how one teaches computing and the concepts there. It can make it much more attractive and interesting to a broader population of students. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I don't know if all of our listeners are quite familiar with that. And those, you know, it, it's always nice to kind of see this in action and see how it can directly impact youth as well. So I, at the beginning, you were able to share a little bit about some of the projects that NSF has funded. But if we can dive a little bit deeper and maybe share with our listeners some of the AI specific 
and AI programs that the National Science Foundation has helped support, and also perhaps some insights into how National Science Foundation sees AI. Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Kathleen. So um, as I mentioned, NSF, I think it's fair to say, I think our colleagues across the interagency would agree with this. We really view ourselves as a leader in supporting fundamental AI research and education. Um, every year, uh, including this, uh, the most recently completed fiscal year of 2020, that's no different, NSF invests more than $500 million in both foundational AI concepts, so a better understanding of reasoning and planning and learning and natural language processing and computer vision and so forth, um, as well as use-inspired AI research. So thinking about how innovations in sectors like energy and transportation, for example, could potentially drive new AI approaches that will in turn advance those sectors as well. So both foundational and use-inspired AI. Uh, and part of our investment is also on workforce development, right? So I, I talked a little bit about the K-12 activity, and there are other activities in the workforce development realm as well that really serve to try to build out the uh, coursework and structural material, teacher professional development that you need at all levels to be able to prepare the next generation of AI leaders in, in, in many ways. Now, in the last couple of years, uh, we have specifically launched a new flagship effort that we call the National AI Research Institutes Program. Uh, and the goal of this program, so we found that for many, many years, we were investing you know, over $500 million in AI, a lot of it to uh, small size projects at the level of 500 grand per project, which is usually enough to cover one faculty member and a couple of graduate students at a university. Um, but it turns out that, that then the faculty member has to constantly uh, submit proposals to NSF and seek out funding. And so in an effort to try to provide a longer term uh, runway and framework for some of the investments that we make, the AI Institute's program is really about trying to stand up a set of multidisciplinary, multi-institution, and multi-sector uh, virtual institutes throughout the country. Institutes that would bring together academia, industry, nonprofits, and state and local governments to be able to advance AI broadly, including in specific science areas like chemistry and physics and, and, and so on, as well as in specific sectors of our economy like agriculture and transportation and so forth. Each of these institutes that we're funding is funded at the level of about $20 million, or I should say up to $20 million over up to five years. And uh, this Past summer, after we went through kind of an intensive competition for the first round of AI institutes, we ultimately funded seven institutes. Uh, this was in partnership with the U.S. Department of Agriculture's National Institute of Food and Agriculture, the Department of Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate, and the Department of Transportation's Federal Highway Administration. So those three departments came together with NSF to join forces to help fund these institutes. And in fact, in the case of USDA, they wholly funded two institutes outright, and we funded, uh, together with the other partners, five additional institutes. Let me give you a couple of examples of, of a couple of the institutes that we funded, just to give you a sense for the type of work that's being enabled through this program. So one of these institutes is called the NSF AI Institute for Research on Trustworthy AI in Weather, Climate, and Coast coastal oceanography, and it's led by a team of researchers at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, the goal here is to bring together researchers in AI, 
atmospheric and ocean sciences and risk communication to really be able to develop sort of a user-driven, trustworthy AI approach that allows us to be able to address some of the pressing uh, uh, challenges, concerns that we see in weather, climate, and coastal hazards prediction. How do we do a better job of assimilating trustworthy and reliable data? How do we make AI-driven predictions? And how do we then communicate those predictions in a way that folks can understand and is, is meaningful to them and potentially motivating in terms of changing behaviors downstream as well? And there are also, as part of this institute, efforts to spring up certificate programs that are really aimed at, at skill sets that folks could have uh, to, to, to be able to become a part of a future workforce to develop, to, to, to deliver the advances that are necessary in forecasting and prediction challenges. So that's one example of an AI institute that we funded. And the second one that I'd highlight, and again, there are five others that I could highlight, but the second one that I'd highlight for the sake of time is a USDA uh, AI Institute for Future Agricultural Resilience, Management, and Sustainability. And so that one is led by a team of researchers at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And their goal is to try to advance AI research in the areas of computer vision, machine learning, uh, soft object manipulation, intuitive human-robot interaction, uh, to try to uh, do a better job in terms of animal agriculture, environmental resilience of crops, uh, safeguarding soil health, doing all of that while taking into account the fact that we have labor shortages in, in the farming sector. And so are there ways in which we can automate some of the processes without jeopardizing today's jobs, mind you. Uh, and I think that one of the cool aspects about this institute that I really like is that they're pursuing a new joint computer science plus agriculture degree. Uh, to really be able to foster the, the bilingual, if you will, nature of uh, researchers and, and experts whom we're going to need, where you have one foot in computer science and you have one foot, in this case, in agriculture, and you can talk both languages going forward. Let me just say that we funded seven of these institutes, and yet they span over 130 organizations in nearly half the states in the US. So this was really an all hands on deck approach of trying to bring together many different institution types, um, minority serving institutions, companies, state and local governments, even other federal agencies that I didn't mention who we partnered with directly, they partnered with some of the teams that we funded on their own. Uh, and, and this program continues, right? So we are running a competition as I speak right now for this next round of AI institutes. And this time around, we're doing so in collaboration with colleagues in the private sector. So four companies, um, uh, Amazon, Google, uh, Intel, and uh, Accenture have uh, stepped up and are contributing resources to support the next round of AI institutes as well. So I hope that gives you a sense for sort of the breadth and the diversity of topics that we try to cover across our AI portfolio through the lens of one of our programs, the AI Institutes program. Yeah, I think this is really great insight. I think this is a, a good education for a lot of our listeners here. You know, I think both for those inside the U.S. and who may deal with NSF directly or indirectly or as part of the research you know, community, but also internationally, because a lot of this research does impact 
overall AI development, no matter where you are in the world and what industry you're in and what application you're doing, whether you're a, a startup or an entrepreneur working on a product or a researcher or an enterprise looking to put AI into practice or a government organization or an agency or a nonprofit. So I think this is really very widespread, I mean, much, maybe even more so than a lot of the, the conversations we've had, which have been more focused on a particular aspect of of AI implementation. So I hope hopefully our listeners are getting a lot of great education. So um, focusing a little bit, you know, in terms of applying AI now to government, you know, to public sector, um, you know, this is something that we spend a lot of time looking at this, both in terms of, of course, here on the AI Today podcast, but also on our, in our AI in government uh, community. So uh, for those on the podcast may know that we also run these online communities, which uh, have featured presenters and topics that we uh, have. Uh, do on a regular monthly basis. It actually started as an in-person meetup back in the day when we had in-person meetups um, here in the D.C. area. But one of the one of the sort of like the silver lining of this uh, pandemic was that, you know, you make something that was local international by basically removing the borders and making it virtual. And as a result, we've actually had worldwide participation in conversations that would have otherwise been very local. And it's also something that, you know, that we have done quite a bit in our training. We used to do, uh, we still do a lot of training on AI machine learning and cognitive technology. Uh, we, we especially focus on a methodology for doing AI and ML called CPMAI, which is a best-in-class methodology, best practice methodology for implementing large-scale AI and machine learning projects, as well as even smaller ones. But if you want to, especially if you want to do something that's going to start small and iterate often and grow big, then you're going to want to get the right methodology in place. And uh, that training has also gone fully virtual and on demand. Um, and I think one of the great things about this is that it's giving more people the opportunity to learn and put AI into practice. Um, and I think that that's one of the other, I think the universities have also learned this, that you know if you can move beyond sort of the lecture hall um, and take your, your education virtually, all of a sudden, your, your, the world is your student population, which I think is great. So bringing it to the public sector here, you know, how, what do you see as some of the unique opportunities that the public sector has around artificial intelligence and, and some of the few areas where you're seeing AI effectively being used, say, in the U.S. federal government specifically and perhaps in other governments as well? Yeah, that's a great question, Ron. So I think that we've really been witness over the course of the last um, several years, right, uh, to this, this um, focused attention on how can we leverage AI and machine learning and other types of emerging technologies like this to really be able to advance the, the capabilities of the federal government enterprise. And for that matter, I would say uh, the state and local level as well, right? I think state and local governments are just as much thinking about these sorts of issues. And as I just think about some of the capabilities that have been deployed across the landscape, you know, we've seen how AI has been brought to use in terms of cybersecurity, trying to be able to do threat detection, trying to be able to do filtering of uh, spam and malware attempts uh, at, at various uh, government agencies and organizations. Uh, I think some of the um, detections of recent um, uh, uh, hacks, for example, uh, recent cybersecurity 
challenges have really come out of the innovations in AI and machine learning that have been deployed in that context. We've seen a lot of discussion uh, by the Department of Transportation and colleagues elsewhere across the interagency and at the state and local level around autonomous vehicles. Uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, for example, uh, is, is, is a great illustration of how um, there's opportunity to be able to uh, leverage that technology to deliver deliver on some of the uh, missions that the various agencies have, whether it be transportation, whether it be agriculture, and, and so forth. Uh, we've also seen, and, and some of this has gone both ways, right? But we've seen a lot of talk in the, in the, in the public sector about uh, judicial decisions and how uh, AI and machine, al- machine learning algorithms have been introduced in those contexts and the challenges associated with that. And I actually I actually think that 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 brings me to something that we haven't really talked about so far today around fairness and bias and uh, the ethics of AI systems, uh, right? How do we ensure that we are designing systems that are uh, provably fair uh, for some definition of fair, where we still, uh, as a society, are reconciling with what that definition of fairness actually looks like. Uh, we have some investments in basic research, by the way, out of NSF that are that are looking at, at this very issue as we speak. So I think that there are a whole stream of opportunities in the public sector uh, where we have the ability to, predicting flight delays, for example, that's another one that um, uh, has been talked about a bit, uh, particularly in the context of, of uh, weather events or uh, other kinds of uh, uh, situations that might present themselves. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity with respect to how we can really leverage AI-based approaches to be able to uh, advance a whole range of sectors that are supported by the federal government from agriculture to healthcare and beyond. I'll give you one example of something that we're doing internally within the National Science Foundation. Uh, because I think it's it's germane to this notion of how do we develop approaches that can save costs, save time, and make us more efficient and effective and really focus in on higher order tasks. And so for the last year or so, uh, we have... Um, Uh, actually deployed a capability that allows us to leverage the treasure trove of data that we have within our organization about awards that we've made, research awards that we've made over the years to try to automate what is one of the most time-intensive processes for our workforce, which is trying to identify qualified reviewers for the many research proposals that we receive. So just as a little bit of detail on this, every year NSF receives about 50,000 proposals from the research community and our job is to bring in outside experts who are not conflicted with those proposals. We don't want folks who wrote proposals reviewing their own proposals. So they can't be conflicted with those proposals, but we want them to lend their subject matter expertise and provide us with reviews so that they can inform which projects we ought to be funding. What's the best science that's going to have the most transformative impact going forward that we should be funding? Well, finding those reviewers, particularly folks who have the right expertise for a given set of proposals and are not conflicted with them, is very difficult, right? It's sometimes trying to find a needle in a haystack because you might have a thousand proposals in an area and you're trying to figure out who's not conflicted and yet who has the expertise. Um, And yet at the same time, we have within our enterprise systems, within the foundation, 
all the awards, all the grants and cooperative agreements that we've issued over the years. And so what we've done over the last couple of years is deploy a tool on a pilot basis that does some natural language processing and allows us to be able to match a new proposal with past awards, as well as with journal articles and public databases and other resources that are out there so that we can potentially surface reviewers for our staff who are leading the review process. And so that that, that innovation right, can free up a significant amount of time for the staff that can allow them to think about higher order tasks. What are the higher order research areas that we should be investing in as an agency? What are the gaps in the research spaces that we're funding that we should be potentially exploring? Those are the types of questions that we'd love to have our PhD trained uh, scientists and engineers focused on within the foundation. And this tool allows us to be able to relieve some of the time intensive pressures that they face on a day-to-day basis, just executing their job. So that's an illustration too, I think, of how um, we're seeing opportunity and potential, but we also, I think it's really important need to recognize that we need to construct AI systems that are going to be fair and transparent and accountable at the end of the day in terms of uh, the results that they're generating. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think that the United States in general has been particularly visible with its efforts around artificial intelligence, especially uh, in, in the past administration, you know, stood up the AI.gov site as sort of a resource for both uh, what, what the U.S. government was doing with its uh, plans for uh, AI and pushing forward, but also to help share uh, that sort of stuff with the broader community. I know there's been, a, a tra- obviously, an administration transition change, but it sounds like a lot of those things are continuing. So maybe for those who have maybe looked at the AI.gov site and see that, uh-oh, it looks like there's some sort of transitionary thing as, as the website moves, maybe you can provide some insight into kind of how AI sort of progressing, you know, administration, administration, and kind of some insight into into sort of what's happening um, with sort of some of that more publicly visible side of, of the AI efforts. Yeah, so great point, uh, Ron. I'll, I'll just say that, um, you know, our priorities at the National Science Foundation, you know, we have for years and years and years invested in artificial intelligence. We've doubled down on that over the last uh, five years or so, uh, and we continue to maintain our, our emphasis and focus on AI, along with a number of uh, what we're calling sort of industries of tomorrow, quantum information science, advanced wireless, and so forth. There's several that um, that fall into that into that categorization. Um, I, I, I do know, you know, we got a lot of questions about AI.gov uh, and what's happening with AI.gov. Um, yes, there was an administration transition. And so the previous AI.gov was archived as part of that. Uh, but we are uh, actively working on uh, on bringing back AI.gov so that those resources uh, can be can be made available to the to the community and to the public at large, uh, broadly writ as well. So so there is, you know, there there are there was an administration transition transition, absolutely. Um, But I think that it's fair to say that AI uh, and and sort of these emerging technology areas continue to be pervasive areas of interest, irrespective of uh, Democrat, Republican, irrespective of party. And these are areas that we're all seeing as ones that are going to help shape U.S. competitiveness and competitiveness on a global stage for years and years to come. And so we continue to be uh, focused on those. 
All right. Well, that's great to hear. I know that, you know, some people are keeping an eye on that. And it's nice to hear that it, AI it continues to to be a driver in the government and that, you know, people are paying attention to it and focusing on it. So, you know, this podcast has been incredible. It's provided some great insights. I always love when you bring in uh, use cases and you brought in a lot of them on, you know, various ways that uh, National Science Foundation is funding different initiatives and helping the youth. So, you know, thank you for that. But I'd like to end this podcast with a final question that we ask all of our guests, because I always love to hear the varied answers that we get. As a final note, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to governments, organizations, and beyond? Wow, that's a great question, Kathleen. So uh, I'll say, and, and perhaps it's not surprising given my role at NSF, Uh, I see us as having a clear and pressing need to invest in fundamental research to ensure that our AI systems uh, are are, uh, to ensure the U.S. leadership in artificial intelligence and data science and automated systems going forward. Uh, And and I guess one of the things that I I briefly touched on uh, in an earlier question that you posed to me that I'll come back to Ensuring that we design these systems fairly and we're cognizant of any biases that are introduced into these systems that affect the outputs of these systems, I think increasingly that is going to be front and center in anything and everything that we do. And and to the extent that that's something that um, uh, we can invest in in basic research to be able to help shape an understanding of fairness, to help shape an understanding of the accountability and transparency and explainability of these systems going forward, I think that that is going to prove to be more impactful than anything else that we can do in terms of really being able to help shape their reliability and their trustworthiness as we go forward with their deployment in government in other organizations and beyond. Um, You know, we we didn't spend a lot of time today talking about this, but AI systems depend heavily on data. And so much work, I think, is still to be done, uh, believe it or not, on thinking about ways in which we can share data uh, in, a, in a way that preserves privacy and, and security, but at the same time allows for those data to be ingested into research activities and ingested into AI systems to help inform the development of those AI systems. So a lot of data assimilation, cleansing, and use um, uh, that needs to happen uh, in order to be able to facilitate that and recognizing various regulatory and, and policy provisions that we have to uh, overcome, perhaps using privacy-enhancing techniques to to make this uh, to make this a, a success. So those are a couple of things that I would highlight, and then maybe the last one that's so important to me and couples with something I said earlier about the workforce of the future. Uh, we need a, a we need a set of folks who are really from a diverse background. They bring diverse perspectives to bear to think about building, understanding designing using AI systems of the future. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that NSF, for instance, lately has been looking at is um, how do we ensure that we are um, not just focused on a subset of the academic enterprise, but we are uh, democratizing access to NSF research, to NSF education, to advanced computing resources, to enable that research and education to all different types of institutions and to researchers of all different backgrounds, because um, we really need that, I think, in order to have the kind of positive, longstanding, enduring impact with our AI systems in the future. 
Well, that's fantastic. And I think also a nice little plug because, you know, one of the communities that we communities that are, are just launching in April is our Data for AI community. It starts from our Data for AI event that we ran back in September, but just like all these communities, rather than having sort of a fixed-in-time conference that we try to jam as much into and into a short, a short amount of time, we figured, hey, let's just have these communities ongoing, always have great topics of conversation, always have great presenters and folks like Erwin, you know, sharing their insights. So just want to let folks know that the Data for AI community launches April 1st, so a little over a week from now uh, with Anthony Scrifignano, who is the Senior Vice President and Chief of Data Science at Dun & Bradstreet, sharing kind of a lot of what they're doing around data collection and data aggregation and data preparation, all the, l- l- I would say, less sexy side of making, you know, advanced analytics and machine learning work. So uh, definitely check it out. Um, and if you are listening to this podcast after April 1st, which I think this is when the published date is, we're recording it before April 1st, you should definitely get Go to uh, data for uh, data AI conf data AI conf.com uh, to basically join that community, and you can see the replay of that if, if that's available at, when you're listening to it, and of course, join the future ones. But uh, we are sort of short for time here, so I really want to thank very much our, our guest, Erwin, for participating, sharing your insights, being so forthright, uh, awesome, transparent, and sharing all these great insights with our AI Today community. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure, and uh, I encourage folks to feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to chat some more. All right, great. Well, I hope that our listeners do take you up on that then. And thank you so much for joining us on this podcast today. We definitely enjoyed having you, and I hope that all of our listeners enjoyed it as well. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. As always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter, and more, please visit our website at Cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group, and make sure to join the Cognolitica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also, subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.